Hello fellow adventurers and welcome back to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In episode 24 of the Nerd Lab podcast, I chatted with Chevas Balloon, the designer of Gambit. Uh, Gambit is a tabletop RPG without pen and paper and a lot of visualization. Chevas had the idea for the game when he drew a dungeon-like maze for his five-year-old son and realized that he could play through the maze as a kind of simplified RPG. We talked about his journey and how he developed Gambit from this experience. After the show, I also tried to play the very first maze Chevas drew with my own five-year-old daughter. And the results were absolutely amazing. I will talk about that session with my daughter at the end of the show. In addition to that, Chevas and I also talked about the challenges of designing a tabletop RPG or a dungeon crawler. And especially the question of how to design a game that is fun for both parents and children. So, without further ado, um, let's get right into the interview. Today I have finally the chance to talk about a topic that is in my head for quite a while now. Whenever we play Gloomhaven on our gaming night and my five-year-old daughter sees me preparing the miniatures and the battlefield, she gets super excited and wants to learn everything about the game and play it with me. I then explain to her which of the characters is the one I am playing and how the game actually works. Of course, without the whole monsters and killing part. But what makes me sad is the fact that I cannot really play the game with her. Because the rules are too complicated, the story is not appropriate and the components are just not kids friendly. Then I stumbled across a Reddit post from today's interview guest, uh, Shevas Balloon, about his current project Gambit, which he self calls a tabletop RPG without pen and paper or electricity. And in his Reddit post, Shevas had one hook that got me immediately. Let me read that short sentence from his Reddit post to you. So what I now say comes from Chevas. One day I read a blog post about a dad who was able to get his five-year-old to focus and sit still for four hours by playing a made-up maze game with RPG elements. At the same time I had a five-year-old and so I was immediately intrigued. I duplicated his idea with success but then the creative juices kicked in and I had ideas. When I was reading this post, it was clear to me that I have to talk to Chevas to learn more about his game and maybe learn how to get my own daughter to play four hours of RPG with me. Welcome to the show, Chevas. Uh, I'm super excited to talk to you today. Oh, thanks, Marvin. I'm glad to be here as well. Yeah, today we want to talk a little bit about um, RPG-like games that are playable by kids, but also appealing to, to us as parents at the same time. I guess that topic is so interesting to us because many of us want to share their D&D experiences from their childhood with their own children today. But before we dive into that topic, it would be great to learn a little bit more about you, Chavas. Um, can you share with us how your journey as a game designer began and um, where your love for RPGs comes from? Yeah, definitely. Let's see. Uh, as a professional, I am uh, I am a designer by trade, uh, specifically in front-end design, a little bit of development as well in terms of you know, websites and apps and things like that. And um, I've always been a visual person. I've always had a technical slant to uh, you know my artistry. And uh, even even as a as a very young child, um, actually I thought I was going to be an architect when I was like six. Which is, in some sense, uh, artistic as well as you know. There's a, there's some technical nature to it, uh, but that eventually evolved into web design and graphic design and things like that. In addition, uh, I've always been a pretty you know I mean avid you know gamer, specifically video games. Uh, it was actually my older brother who was um, always into you know things like board games growing up. But as I've as I've gotten older and had a family, you know, certain 
certain things like hours and hours of video games don't you know aren't, aren't really feasible. <laughs> not not if you have a you know three kids and a wife. No, they aren't. They definitely aren't. But one of the you know one of the draws of a of a board game setting or a tabletop setting is um, it's it's much more communal than sitting in front of a screen. And don't get me wrong, I still like um, you know a video game when I get a chance, um, but you know that that um, you know that the nature of a tabletop experience started to attract me more and more as I got older, and um, so I ended up you know borrowing you know in terms of becoming a you know a tabletop game designer, um, I ended up borrowing a lot of experience not only just from design principles that I've learned in my trade, but also and just in things that I've liked in video games and and how. How do those things translate um, to a tabletop experience? And that's not necessarily straightforward. It, I mean, you can't just duplicate things because the entire interface is is totally different. You know, the experience is different. Um, but that's kind of how I've moved into this. And you know, and I would say that I'm a, you know, I'm a new, I'm a new person. I'm an amateur uh, in terms of this specific space. You know, this was my this is my first venture into into tabletop design. Yeah, that's great. But um, I have seen some of your hand-drawn mazes on your blog post, and uh, yeah, one can see that you uh, are really talented um, designing designing things. I would say I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, and and you're probably referring to how I, you know, uh, on the website, which I'm sure will, you know, you'll indicate to your listeners, uh, you know, where to go and look at that. But you're talking about that, you know, how it all started, and and those are actually my drawings, and and they're they're not uh, they're they're somewhat rudimentary, but you know, I did spend a little bit of time doing it. Um, and just to be clear, you know, I ended up actually hiring an illustrator to do the actual game art, um, but you know, all the composition is mine. In the Reddit post, you mentioned um, a blog post from someone else that inspired you. Can you tell us a little bit more about that original blog post you were referring to? Yeah, the um, the the title of it was Journey to Justinia. I think the the gentleman who wrote it is his name was Justin, uh, I believe. Um, the, unfortunately, the blog post is now um, no longer accessible, but I was able to find it on archive.org. Yeah, and, the internet doesn't forget. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> um, and so I uh, so I was like, how do you know how I kept my son? It, number one, it, before. Before I was read the post come across, came across it, my son, who was at the time four, um, and even just even a year before that too, just you know over the course of at least a year, maybe it was three or four, can you draw me a maze? Can you draw me a maze? And I would draw him a maze, you know, somewhat at his level so that he could complete it. Um, and I was drawing mazes quite a bit at that time, and. Uh, And so when I came across this blog post, I was like, oh, I have to look at that. I mean, it was just straight, you know, squarely within, you know, what I was doing with my son. And, and you know, and I have always liked mazes, you know, just had an affection for them um, in general. I mean, kind of as an aside, there's this Japanese man who drew this like in super intense maze. And it was when I mean, it was this beautiful piece of artwork. Anyway, that's an aside. But so I've always liked mazes. Um And um, so when I looked at the title, you know, how I kept my five-year-old son to basically be focused and, you know, play for four hours straight. And I was like, okay, this is, uh, this seems valuable. Challenge um, accepted. <laughs> yeah, challenge accepted. I want to try this. And sure enough, you know, I, um, he had his own drawings. But, you know, as an artist and a designer myself, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm going to do my own. Like immediately, I'm like, I'm going to draw my own. Um And I want to, you know, I want to play with this idea and kind of do some things differently. But I really, I really, essentially just duplicated his entire, um, I mean, his approach, straightforward. I, I did, you know, duplicated it, and the the gameplay was the same. And you take turns, and you use little Lego pieces or something, like really tiny ones, to keep track of where you are in the maze. And you know, each maze is kind of have these these pseudo sections. And and so you you know a move a movement turn would just be moving from one section to another. Then you have to follow the rules there. And so uh, my son, you know, and I have three children. I have you know two girls and a and a boy. That my son's the oldest. Yeah, I have the same. Oh, cool. And he um 
he was absolutely enthralled with it. Now he he was a little young. Um, I mean, he would. I, I think he was almost. He had just turned five, and it was still a little bit challenging for him. Um, but he nevertheless was enthralled with it. I mean, he very much enjoyed it and wanted to play again. And, you know, I coached him through the whole thing. Um, and, you know, so I, you know, I drew another one and, and then it became like, wait a second, like how many of these am I going to draw? Because once you, <laughs> one of the issues was, uh, well, you know, if, if I can just, I draw these endlessly, I mean, this will just never end. And it's a lot of work, you know, you put in a lot of work and then all of a sudden it's over in a day or a half a day And that's it. You don't really play it again. How long did it take uh, to to draw one of these? Oh, probably. I mean, if you you know you can when you look at them, you'll see they're they're somewhat color. Um, probably at least th two or three hours somewhere in there. You know, I do the outline and then, um, you know, one of the things that the blog post author did was he he had a certain kind of texture that he drew to indicate what were walls. And I wanted to actually make that color, um, and so I ended up, you know, doing some, you know, coloring after I drew the, you know, the outline. Yeah, the one, the one thing I didn't get completely about these mazes is how how the rules actually work, because um, yeah, it's a it's a drawn maze on a large sheet of paper, and there's a lot of um, traps, obstacles, enemies in there. But how do you actually move through this maze? How do you interact with these um, with these traps and obstacles? Um, are there some kind of skill checks, or do, are you using dice for something, or is it just a more a story you are you are telling your children? Yeah, there. Yeah, you do use dice. It's been a while since I've actually played it. Uh, it was in 2014 when I discovered the blog post. But um, for instance, you you take turns like. Player one will move their piece to the next room, and they're they're somewhat divided into rooms. Sometimes it's not super clear, but you kind of just have to. Um, whoever built the maze decides beforehand where the quote rooms are, and then you can move from um, you know one point to another. Um, actually, no. Now that I remember the. You move to each point of interest. So, for example, if it's just a flat piece of ground, you can traverse the whole thing until you come to either A, an enemy, B, uh, a ladder, um, or uh, like a pit you can fall in. So any any you can move from wherever you are to the next uh, point of interest that's, that's near you in whatever direction you want to go. And then when you get to the point of interest – um, it's let's say it's a, a pit that you can fall in. You do have to do a dice roll. I don't remember what the the rules were. Like you know, if you rolled like a one or a two, you fail or something like that. I, I can't remember exactly, but there was there were dice rolls, uh, and then um, if you failed, you would kind of go back to where you were, and maybe take some damage. Um, if it's an enemy, you know, same kind of scenario, and um, so. So even though you know you just take turns moving from each point of interest, you know, as as certain players you know either success or fail more often than the other, you know the player that succeeds tends to um, you know get ahead. But it's also not necessarily clear. One of the things that disrupts you know just you know pure luck is um, you know kind of using some teleporters and, and exactly which way to go first to get the key to unlock the door. And and so you might get ahead, but then you might go the wrong way. And and the whole the the point of it too was that you know and Justin the blog uh, the author was very specific that he want you should play with a fog of war and he used magnets to cover most of the maze. So you know I mean that is also an element of luck, but you don't know which way you're going. Um, you don't you don't you don't know which is the right way to go off at the start. I've actually had a look at his um, at the blog post, um, the original one, and um, I saw his first prototype where he, he used uh, tape uh, as fog of war. Yeah, <laughs> it looked very funny. Um, yeah, but I was also it was really interesting for me to see that he was using um, Lego, for example, to track health points um, and other components. Did you use similar components um, when you were starting with the mazes? 
Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I used Legos. I did. I mean, you even got like I got a bunch of red Legos that were the same size, right? I mean, I I really took it to another level just so that you know my son would create this association in his brain. Okay, these these two by two Lego bricks that are all red, those are health points, and each one represents one. Um, you know, it's funny. The author, you know, obviously he couldn't know, but he these things that he thought through and um, iterated on himself were some of the uh, f- like the fundamentals that are underneath Gambit. I mean, it, Gambit's a totally different game, obviously, but I mean, he had no idea. You know, if I could meet him, I would thank him. But it inspired <laughs> me so much. Um, and there are certain threads that still carry through from that original blog post. That's amazing. That's an amazing story that you can tell later on your um, on your Kickstarter page, maybe. I'm so curious about that mazes because I definitely plan on playing them with my daughter on this weekend. You're going to play this game? Yes, I will. <laughs> That's I will awesome. Say, I will... I don't. I'm not sure. Maybe I will play the original one, or um, maybe I borrow the um, the maze from from your blog post if that's that's okay for you because it looks so incredible. And when I will show it to my daughter, I'm sure they will. She will beg me to play it. Yeah. Let me know if you have a problem. The um, I mean the the full size. I think they're the full size images are there for you to download. I I encourage you to. Okay. Perfect. Um. Maybe I have even the time. Um. When I do it on the weekend, I can I can add it to the uh, to the end of this podcast episode maybe when I yeah, edit it. That'd be awesome. I'd like to know <laughs> the how results. It goes. So um, tell us a little bit more how the transition from these mazes to your first real board game prototype went. Yeah. Um, so the question, you know, I, and I hinted at this earlier. I said to myself, you know, am I just going to continue to draw maze after maze? What if I What if I was able to create a maze from pieces that could – I could make one set of pieces that would then be configurable to a maze. I could make a maze out of these pieces, and then that way I could make an endless number of mazes. And um, it was really about just not wanting to continually draw maze after maze after maze, though that would be cool. I wanted something in a, in a – in essence, it was basically taking a cue from a procedurally generated, uh, you know, dungeon or map in a video game. In the difference being that instead of just taking the building blocks and having some algorithm follow a certain set of rules and just make one, you know, I could handcraft it still, but it would go a lot quicker. And so, I, in order to do this, it felt natural to change the orientation and, and when listeners can uh, go and find out they'll discover that the original maze game is 2d like kind of from a side scrolling uh perspective looking at it from the side like an old school metroid or castlevania so i switched it from to top down uh like old school zelda so that the the map is you're now looking down onto the players, you know, and, and basically kind of what you see in, I mean, not kind of specific, you know, directly what you see with, uh, you know, any tabletop RPG is that the, you know, you can buy the grid, the grid maps that are one by one square inches or the hex ones. And when you flip it over, I mean, there, those are all top down and, and the, the dungeon master will draw a map on it and stuff. So I went back, to, I went to that orientation and I started, um, I, I bought a bunch of magnet, magnetic tiles and uh, uh, off of Amazon, and then I drew the shapes, like corners and walls and stuff, on on, um, on little pieces of paper, cut them up, and then uh, the the magnet tiles were adhesive, and I you know I stuck them to the magnet tiles. You know, and then I had this, you know, magnetic marker board, which he does, you know, Justin does in this original blog post. And I used, you know, I used the same uh, kind of format, but then the map was now, where it was now these tiles. And um, I ran into, you know, ran into one of the problems uh, was that I drew all of the treasure and enemies right on the map tiles. And... Um, so, you know, if there was a spider in the corner, well, there was always going to be a spider in that specific corner piece, and there was no way around it. Mm. And so, so we played that one once, and I was like, wait a minute, I gotta re, I gotta rethink this. 
And that is probably the point where I transitioned from trying to iterate on Justin's game and then moving to I'm going to make my own game. Um, and, uh, you know, because the, the, the skill checks were all pretty simple. And, um, I mean, everything was really simplified, obviously, for a five-year-old. I, I wanted to amp it up a little bit, but I still wanted it to be geared toward, you know, um, I would say equally appealing to kids as well as adults, uh, which is which is a hard uh, line to walk. But that was probably the point where I switched and I said I need to change this even more dramatically. And so then I started – that's when I moved to the computer, went into some software and started mocking up these dungeon tiles – in all the you know corners, convex corners, concave corners, hallways, you know, doorways, and all all, all you know, probably you know fifty or sixty different combinations of these tiles, and then I started drawing by hand and scanning all of the the treasure and the items and the enemy, and it just and it ended up becoming this huge thing, and I, I realized I was making a game, and um, that's when I started taking it really seriously. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Um, and on your website uh, and in the Reddit post as well, you explain the game as a role-playing game or a role-playing game and a board game hybrid. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, great question. I And, and I, I self-labeled it the tabletop mega game because uh, what is what is a mega game anyway? I mean, it's, it, it is... It sounds cool. Yeah, it, it, sounds is, cool. it does sound cool. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I got I to gotta run with this. Um, I mean, mega really comes from the scope of it, which we could talk about later. It's really big. Uh, but it also is... It is tabletop, but it, it also creates some mystery, some obscurity. Is it a board game? Is it an RPG? It's It's kind of both. I would probably say it's first an RPG. Um, and when I was making those dungeon tiles, and this is probably, I mean, I had a moment of inspiration and this, I don't know how I came up with this, but I, I didn't see it anywhere. I, um, I didn't, um, you know, when I worked with, when I was working from, you know, journey to Justinia, there was a lot of things I was pulling from it, but I had this idea That was purely on my own. I don't know where it came from, but it just totally made sense. And I envisioned the you know, a lot of games like Dungeons and Dragons and all, all kinds of video games. They all use like some variation of five or six standard attributes. And and I have you know I've, I've played um, I've played a decent amount of of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, I've never really liked how they made some of their decisions about you know what attributes uh, affect what and I really had this I, I, I decided to do this um, I decided to just kind of tweak just, just totally tweak that and I, the idea came to me of what if what if the attributes themselves were uh, could could function as like the, the the foundation of equip slots and it's really kind of difficult to explain verbally but it makes complete sense when you go and look at it on the website. Uh, and I had this vision where um, you you know you have your strength, your constitution or stamina, whatever you want to call it, and, and that's on a row of squares. And you could place an item, if it was a strength-based item, you could place it on the strength row, and that's how you equip it. And so um, – and then not every row has the same amount of equip slots – You know, based on what kind of class you're playing, and, and that that can be modified and altered and improved and changed as you play. And I just thought it was a really cool visual idea to represent a new way to represent the classic five to six attributes that you see in these games. And when I it was it happened while I was making these level tiles. And when I thought of that, I said to myself, "This is an RPG. Like I got to make this a full blown RPG." And and I married it into the game, and so that's that's when I decided I was going to make an RPG, have a full blown system, because I'm literally looking at uh, a visualization that requires a rule set. I got to come up with a rule set to do this, and how it is also a board game really has to do with some, you know, that initial inspiration from Journey to Justinia, and that is. 
you know, um, that when he was making this maze game with his son, there was no pen and paper. They were just counting Legos. And I said to myself, what it, how would I make a game? How could I make an RPG without pen and paper? I mean, that was like, it sounds hard, but as a designer, again, by trade, it sounded like a really cool challenge. Like, could I do this? You know, nobody, I mean, there's like, if, if anybody has played any tabletop Dungeons and Dragons or anything, you know, you, your character sheet, you're writing all over it. <laughs> like, you know, a lot of people take notes when they play. I mean, it's like to not have pen and paper seems a little bit kind of crazy. Um, but I thought, you know, I actually discovered it's not that crazy uh, later on. But um, I thought, well, I could, maybe, how can I do this without pen and paper? And it really demands uh, board game elements to enter into the equation, uh, which, you know, you, you're using essentially tokens and counters and tiles to keep track of everything. If anybody is listening that plays war games, you know, they're not necessarily, I don't play war games, but um, they're not, they're not going to think, you know, they're not going to think anything of having a whole bunch of pieces because some of those games have an insane amount of pieces, which I discovered later, which actually validated, okay, so it's not that big of a deal. But um, so that's, that's essentially how I decided I was making an RPG and then also, making a board game and then because and one thing i'll add to that real quick too is that when i decided well this is kind of this brings in board game elements um i asked myself the question what other things do board games do you know that are unique from rpgs and i'm like well they you you're always playing against each other almost always i mean you know like shadows over camelot you're working together usually but um there's some, you know, obviously there's cooperative games, but most of the time you're you're playing against each other. And I'm like, what would it look like to have a full-blown, bona fide role-playing game, but you also compete in? How does that even work? And uh, then that's when I kind of, I mean, that's when the real vision of Gambit uh, coalesced. Well, thank you very much for letting us be part of uh, this transition process in your design planet journey um, i have a lot of follow-up questions um, but let's start with the character sheet you you mentioned um, because it was one of the things that immediately caught my eye when i was browsing your website um, it uses a lot of different colors cool. and everything is square shaped um, yeah, i wish i i could show it to the to the listeners but um, they will have to to click on the on the link in the show notes but It really resonates with me because it was um, it was easy, it was visually attractive, and it was something which I thought maybe not my daughter, she's five years old, but maybe a little little bit older exactly. uh, kid mm -hmm. could could play with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I also um, loved the idea of using the the skills as slots because I in in my game design I'm designing a um, cooperative fantasy card game. Um, I had one of one similar idea. Um, so at one point in time, my um, my slots were um, attributes as well, um, and now now they are items. The items are my slots now. So you have a, a weapon item, um, a defensive item, and a spell slot, um, and the cards you're playing from your hand. So the spells you're casting are cast through that um, through that um, slots. And um, your your character sheet reminded me a little bit of um, of um, of my own design so that's why I, it resonates with me oh good so there's we have some mutuality here some similar yeah, thinking i then thought that you have a lot of a lot of um, character attributes you have primary attributes you have secondary attributes and tertiary attributes and my first feeling was that this is kind of a lot for for the younger audience so have you have you ever thought about using less less attributes or how did it come that you have um, a whole bunch of them uh it's a great question um so number one this is subject to change <laughs> but i have i have gone back and forth on this exact question probably 10 times uh having <laughs> Just primary attributes is how it started. Well, maybe I should do some secondary attributes. Okay, what about these tertiary? Oh no, let's go back to secondary. And I and I keep keep going back and forth. 
Um, and I have a, a bunch. And you are getting at, you know, that striking that balance, you know, between, you know, how would you make this, uh, you know, appealing to, I'm kind of aiming for 10 year olds. Um, at the same time, not, you know, not overly complicated whether, you know, it's going to be too much. One of the motivating factors that continues to push, you know, having more attributes than less is this, the fact that, that the game is a really large scope. Um, 25 handcrafted levels, each level played in a session like you would at, you know, a D&D session. So that's at least several hours. Um, because of the scope of the game, now as I, as I iter, you know, as I kind of play test more, but it, uh, this, you know, I might be able to scale back some. But because the scope is so large, I wanted to be able to offer uh, treasure and items that um, were, you know, little like they were more uh, incremental upgrades or or bonuses or benefits rather than something substantial right away. So, for example, if you get an item that increases the primary attribute, let's say agility, then that will benefit everything that agility touches, the secondary attribute, the tertiary attribute, any, anything, physical defense. It just uh, it, It's a really big upgrade. So having the secondary and tertiary attributes allows me to create uh, – Items that only only upgrade, you know, plus one to thievery, right? Not the whole agility row, but just a portion of it, or or plus one to you know movement or stealth or something, right? And so it's a nice upgrade, but it's not as big as the primary update. Now, the whole math and the balancing of like, you know, maybe the game, maybe I don't need to get that granular. I don't know. So I am still uh, – I have all kinds of versions of this, uh, of this character sheet still saved, and I'm, and I'm kind of playing with them. Um, I at least wanted to show you know, on the website kind of where I've been leaning lately, and it's also the most – this is, is maximum complexity you'll ever get. Um, you know, so it does actually show some, some, some thinking and some thought process. Uh, which is kind of cool. I probably won't go down all the way to just primary attributes. It's going to be between secondary, uh, having tertiary or not having tertiary. But um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's tricky. I mean, yeah, you, as a is. fellow designer, you understand the trade-offs are well. You'll spend just so much time just sitting there thinking. Yeah, I know that I'm I'm sitting <laughs> or standing in front of my whiteboard quite a bit thinking. Um, yeah. Without producing an actual prototype, um, but I, I, as an RPG lover, um, of course, like this granularity um, of having tertiary attributes. I love it because it goes into the same direction um, as uh, you, as a point that you made on your website as well, where you said that you want to create an RPG that is played without pen and paper but still offers extensive character progression. And this extensive character progression is um, the same goal that I have for my game. Um, because through character progression, you can create very intense relationships between the player and the character. And on the podcast, mm -hmm. I once told the story of how I found my 25-year-old D&D character um, in a box lost in the basement. Um, and I immediately remembered all of the adventures, strength, and weaknesses of that character. Um, <laughs> so the relationship was, was wow. intense. Yeah. Um, and I was never able to build that kind of an intense relationship with a character I played in, in a board game. Um, and this, is, mm -hmm. this feeling is exactly what I want to transfer into an adventure card game. And when I see the work that you are doing... Um, I think it goes a little bit in the same direction because this is for me extensive character progression. It is more than just upgrading your primary attribute by one. And but right. it's definitely not easy. Yeah, this. What can you tell us? What else you 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 implemented in your game to allow extensive character progression? So the skills, the skills, talents, 
uh, and abilities as well. Some the abilities are very small set, and those are probably going to stay restricted to the class. They're just unique per class, and there's not very many of them. And then skills, uh, talents would be kind of in between. Uh, I'll say skills first. Skills would be anything that can be learned. Um, and then talents would kind of be, um, in terms of availability, can be learned. Some of it will be class-locked, but I'm thinking mostly not. I really want to I really want to encourage um, those hybrid classes, people who want to make a battle mage and stuff like that. Um and so, but anyway, so there, there are we are we are going to have a set of cards. They're not going to be well. Actually, it's funny. Um, we, we are going to have like playing cards with the skills. And in order to use those, you have to find a skill book, which is a tile item that has to be equipped on you know on the character sheet. And then once you have the skill book, we, you know you can use skills within that school. We have six or so schools defined, and and so then you get the card now. Um, me and, you know, the story writer who is also, he's also has some, some really great design chops in terms of ideas. Um, he's not an artist or, uh, you know, a graphic designer by any means, but he is, uh, but he can think through things like mechanics and stuff. And so he's, he really, really wants to have, um, skill cards played like a, like a living deck game on top of all of this. And he's explained it to me, and so we are probably going to offer uh, two, like, there's already two modes in the game, but within one of the modes, we're probably going to offer another set of modes. I don't, this might get kind of crazy, but essentially, um, the being able to play your skills, um, essentially like a deck-building game. Um, so it adds a little bit more randomness to what you're able to do in any, any given encounter. And uh, that will not be a required mode. I definitely still want to have a, a little bit more traditional experience where the player can specifically decide what skill they want to use, when they want to use it. Um, so we we might actually offer both of those things. Uh, but as he explained to me, you know, some of the things that you could do with the, the deck builder uh, layer, I was like, well, that could be pretty cool. So. Um, we're already going to have the skill cards represented on cards because, as you can see, the character sheet can get uh, filled up pretty quick, and um, and so there's only a limited amount of room. And so we'll have some kind of token uh, configure actually, or just flip the card over when you use it, um, and so that you know, and then they they have a refresh, like a cooldown, will you know where you know after a certain encounter or a certain amount of um, a certain counter, a certain interval within the game, uh, those um, those skills can be reused. Some things can't be reset until um, within the game. One of the focal points is the is the campfire, and the campfire, um, unlike a traditional RPG, uh, there will be death. You will die and respawn, and there will be and there will be penalties. Um, there is going to be a little bit of brutality <laughs> to the player. Like, oh man, I died so easily. Um, and so I really want them to learn um, how not to die. And so there's – so that's a unique thing that you don't normally find in a lot of tabletops. You'll die and you'll respawn. Um, and so – but when you're at a campfire, certain things are possible that aren't possible anywhere else on the map. And so some skills and things will, will reset. So um, – but they'll – when you know when a player gets a skill book, they also have to find the skill items in the dungeon. And when they get the item, they just simply just – learn it, they trade it in for the card. And when they have the card in their hand, um, that they can use it at, you know, any given encounter. I don't even actually remember what your question was, but hopefully I answered it. <laughs> the question was about the um, character progression. And I think you, you... Oh, right. You explained a lot of elements of your game that um, yeah, go into that direction. Right. And there's a lot on the site that I just haven't had a chance to really, um, you know, communicate in, in that... Uh, format, you know, all my notes are just, you know, 100 pages of crazy <laughs> notes, right? So I know that. Um, I have all these coming soon's up there, things that I want to hint at. I don't want to give away all the secret sauce. That's a really hard balance. Like, how do you market yeah. a game and not give it all away? Maybe That's another question for later. <laughs> maybe 
I can get you to a point where you give away one more secret because I have seen on your website <laughs> that you have uh, one component that is called an action point card. What exactly is it? Because the name made me curious. Okay, so you know, how do I? How do you measure any like, the number of actions you can take? Like you know, D and D has its set of rules. You can move, and then you can do a primary action, and you know whatever else. And um, I decided that I wanted to steal from Divinity: Original Sin, which is a video game, and it's a turn-based RPG, and it's fantastic. One and two. Yeah, I, I currently play it with a friend of mine. Yeah, so you're very familiar with their action point system. And what I wanted to do was, and it also helps, you know, one of the things that video games do that you never see done really, well, maybe not never, but much more, uh, less frequently, is uh, like managing things like mana and, you know, how you deal with magic. And I just, I didn't want to go down that road. Um, And uh, so a lot of, you know, tabletops, they'll just, you have a certain amount of spells, you can use them however many you want, whatever your turn is. And that's how a lot of tabletop, like Dungeons and Dragons, handles it. You could just use them. I mean, you even can get cards for it, right? You know, just to help you remember what you have, and you can look at them. So there is a little bit of that similarity, but there, everything's going to be restricted to action points. And so um, the, the action point card is just is just a tool to help you keep track of which action points you've used per turn. And then when you know, when it comes around to your next turn, you move them all back over and um, and then you know you can just you basically flip a token or move a token. You probably flip a token, you know, from one color to another to indicate that you've used it. Um, so it's, it doesn't actually take up that much space. And it's on the um, there's another card that keeps track of your hit points. And this is again back to how do you keep track of hit points or health points in a board game? And it's literally a counter, and you just move a token around. Um, you know, so it starts at let's say it starts at you know, 30 hit points, and you take five damage. You move it down to 25, um, and so on. That card is your hit points and your action points. And so when you perform a turn, if you're going to do a standard attack, it'll take a certain amount of action points. If you're doing a special skill that you've learned, then you have to, you know, it'll tell you how many action points that will take, and then you expend those to perform that skill. Yeah, that's very interesting. I asked that question because uh, the last podcast episode I produced was about resources. Um, and action points were actually one example um, of resources that players um, have to manage. Um, and in my game, I use action points as well. Yeah, nice. And they can be expanded, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, and they can be used for for a lot of different um, different actions. You can use it to um, to uh, pay for the, the 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 spells you want to to use for the cards you want to play from your hand. But you can also use them to activate a, a permanent card that's on the battlefield or use um, um, some quest-related um, action. Right. Uh, yeah. And I also um, produced a podcast episode about um, how to track health points in uh, in board games. Oh, that would be an interesting listen. So, um, yeah, that sounds very interesting about your game. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, designing games for kids. Um, because uh, I find it very difficult to put myself into the place of my kids. Sure. You do not only have to take into their account their physical skills, but also their emotional and cognitive skills. Because of this, I think it is very important to design for a very specific target group. Um, what I mean by that is that a kid between three and five has a completely different view of the world than maybe a kid between five and seven or older. And you said that uh, your goal is to create a game that is for, I think, 10-year-olds, um, but mm-hmm. it's also appealing for, for, for older people, for parents um, and adults. So the question is, what are your design principles and challenges um, because of um, your design goal for designing for parents and uh, children as well? I really like this question. Uh, I haven't figured it all out yet. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you what I believe and what I think I've learned. One thing that was a total surprise to me, um, truly I was just surprised because not everybody is like me, I guess, right? <laughs> When I was playing Dungeons and Dragons, 
we had a session that lasted about a, I mean a, a campaign that lasted about a year. And most of the players at the table uh, could care less about the maps, the tokens, the, the minifigures. They just they, they didn't care about it. They were just happy uh, imagining everything. You know, as a very visual person within the visual trade, this was not me at all. So I found it kind of fascinating, and I'm like, oh, I didn't you – know, you guys don't really care about any of this stuff. Um, but I did. And I feel like um, – and that's fine. I mean a lot of people, you know, they they really, really, really value the, the storytelling and the, and the verbal interaction. And I do too. Uh, but, I mean, that's that's kind of the main thing that why they play. Um, but as a visual designer, I love the visual. And I have noticed that kids really – like the visual um they they absorb a lot they learn a lot if you can interact with all of their senses um that i think that you're going to uh create a, a larger appeal i mean if you think about a kindergarten classroom and it looks very different than a high school uh english classroom all right. I mean, there's colors everywhere. There's, I mean, obviously there's there's more toy toy oriented activities. There's color, you know, things hanging up full of color, and everything's visual, and and you can see it, and they go and they want to touch it and grab it, and and um, so you know, obviously, you know, five year like as you just said, five year old is a different uh, target uh, than ten, but even at ten. Which is, I think, where I'm aiming here, and I say it on the website. I still think that visual appeal is really important. They like things that look cool. I mean, a lot of us like things that look cool, but especially a 10-year-old. Um, and so, when a 10-year-old sits down to play Gambit, and I've run a, I've run a play test with like five, four 10-year-olds, and they they like flipped out. They just loved the whole thing. Um, and so that was actually a, a great indicator. But, but when the 10-year-old sits down, they see the map. They see their guy. They see their character sheet. They see their equipment. They see everything that they have. And you know, it creates a sense of ownership when they can see it. And then when you create that sense of ownership, I, I believe that that also uh, creates um, – uh, a motivation to be involved, um, and and so that would be the the first thing that I would say. The you know the second thing in terms of you know and we were hinting at this earlier is you know how do you make mechanics not overly complex? But what I've discovered is you know I think ten year olds you know we often don't give kids enough credit, and if we push them a little bit, I think that that's okay. But, you know, just making the mechanics simple to, you know, easy to understand, but then, you know, min-maxing them may not be as straightforward. And, and that's kind of where I've aimed in terms of mechanics. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it here because um, I, uh, I read a very good written paper on the topic how different age groups of um, children react in games and what are their underlying um, motive, motives and when when it comes to uh, tweens though nine to ten year olds they are they're explained as um, identity explorers they want to be part of a group but also explore their individu individuality um, and that is probably something that happened when you uh, play tested with a, a group of five of them and they like to be experts so they want to play games that are very easy to learn but they can be hard to master Hmm. So um, the challenge is to make the goal as interesting as possible and allow them to use their creativity to find their way through. And this is, I think, a perfect example for your game as well. They like to learn with the, with the content um, and they like to discover elements in the game. And with a good progression system, you, you can um, definitely uh, deliver this to the, to the children, to, children, to the players. This would be a valuable paper to read, it sounds like. Yeah, I will definitely share it with you. That'd be um, great. And all the listeners as well. They also t um, talk about the other um, 
age group. They divided it into toddlers, preschoolers, primary schoolers, and tweens. Um, and the toddlers, for example, they need much more positive feedback. That's very important for them. Mm. Um, they are very easily distracted um, <laughs> and very easily overwhelmed. Yeah, I think you know that when you have <laughs> that when you have three kids as well. Yeah. Um, and the preschoolers, for example, they are more curious and eager to learn. They want to learn um, why everything is as it is. They love to explore things um, and the, they love to do role playing. So that's probably why these uh, that's the the target age of five round five um, where your original um, idea comes from yeah? mm -hmm. they and my daughter is doing a lot of role playing currently um, and they love to think what would I do if I were them um, and they prefer to create stuff on their own rather than following strict rules though they need some space in the game mm. uh, and I think this is a uh, This is very well done with the mazes we talked in the beginning. Right. Uh, and then we have the primary schooler. They um, they are more focused and they are usually seeking to to finish a task uh, before moving on to the next one. Uh, and they will try to complete the task. They, they want to really uh, complete before they do the next thing. So they need some kind of progression system that tells them, okay, you have um, finished this task, go on to the next. And because they wish they wish for accomplishment, um, and they also love the feeling of um, achievement and mastering new skills. Yeah, and this is a this is a paper I really liked to read, and I will share with um, with all of you. Um, and I think you what you described for for your target audience pretty pretty well matched um, what they described um, the tweens about. Well, that is encouraging <laughs> then. So, um, do you have anything else that you would like to share with the audience? I do. I have one more thing I'd like to share, which um, I just want to talk about what I name as special encounters in Gambit. And this is actually um, pretty significant focal point I love, of I the love game. special things, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. My story writer and I, and it, it, was, it was nearly like jointly done how we fumbled into this. I think I had the like the original idea and then he uh added this development to this that was like yes that's that's exactly what i want to do so you know i could kind of taste it and then as soon as i like started describing it he saw it uh so it was a really cool collaborative effort and what we have and this i have to be really careful with but what we have is it really i want to answer the question You know, how do you compete? There is there there is an element, you know, like many role playing games where you're working together. There are certain things that you are not going to be able to do alone in this game. But at the same time, even while that's happening, you're still competing, and so it creates uh, conflicting kind of goals. It creates a little bit of tension, which is what I want to do. I always want the like when the players waiting for their turn to come around. They're feeling that tension, and I think that that adds to fun, and it, and it, and it encourages involvement and thinking. And so, um, so the special encounters, are, we have a whole set of thematic encounters, and they get reused throughout the, throughout the game. I think we have like 20 of them right now. I'm not exactly sure. And... These are um, these are not the only place. Uh, the goal of the game is to is to not only like finish the story, but while you're while you're um, discovering the the dungeon and the story and everything about it, is you're you're earning basically uh, board games use victory points. I'm I'm going to call them probably fame points, but you're basically earning points for certain things. And uh, there's a number of ways to earn these these uh, fame points but one of the most significant ways i would say the most the, the ones that yield the most are these special encounters and when players interact with them and they're, they're thematic so I'll, i'll give you an example one is you'll come across an ancient device you have no idea what it is but i definitely want to find out because ancient device sounds great Yeah, yeah, you'll want to find out. Yeah. So when you come up to it, depending on your class, which which class you're playing, the 
there's a success fail opportunity, and upon success, what the the combination of player like classes present has a dramatic effect on the um, the fame points that are yielded, in a sense. Uh, and we have thematic descriptions and reasons why that is the case. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, a rogue, the rogue class has, you know, just imagine a rogue, right? It's kind of a thief, ninja. Uh, they have different motivations. Like, why are you a rogue? Well, you, you know, you're, you have a motivation. You know, why are you a knight? Why are you a mage? Um, your motives are different. And we, we develop that. And they really come to light in these special encounters. Um, so as you come to a special encounter, you're like, gosh, if, if I if I partner with the rogue to do this, gosh, that could be good or it could be bad. I'm not sure. You know, some things will be more obvious. Like we have some easy ones to kind of interpret, but there's an interpretive uh, thing that the players have to do. Like, okay, I'm, you know, um, if I've come to this. Uh, like a tomb, right? A tomb, and it, the tomb is of um, a, a fallen king, or uh, you know, a, a revered king, a revered you know, you know, warrior of old. You know, what is the knight going to do when he comes across this tomb? As opposed to what's the rogue going to do, or what's a mage going to do? Maybe the mage doesn't care about the tomb, right? You know, so like, and based on those motives, you have to interpret it, and then you'll discover after you know you complete the encounter. Um, uh, the the yield, the reward, and um, and so then you get to learn from that experience. Well, crap, I'm not going with him again because you know if I come across one of those because that really ruined uh, the yield that I had an opportunity. So this creates an asynchronous kind of experience, and it cr- and it creates that tension and the competition. Um, so I'm really looking forward to f- uh, fleshing that out more. And um, we have it mostly done. The the spreadsheet we have on it is super intense. Um, but uh, I'm excited about that piece of the game quite a bit. It sounds awesome, to be honest, because it is uh, an aspect that reminds me a lot of uh, role playing. Yeah. Because this is more situational than just a yeah a very scripted event. It's more like uh, the dungeon master would. Uh, Uh, go really into the situation and decide based on the characters that are there. Have you have you played Gloomhaven? Uh, I haven't played it, but um, it has been put on my radar by like <laughs> seven people. They're like, oh my okay. god, because yeah. I've and I've looked into it. I've read about it online, and I'm oh, okay. There's a lot of there's a lot of similarities. Uh, not totally. There's not a lot of continuity. There's not as much continuity between you know my sessions and theirs but there's a lot of there's still a lot of things that are similar i mention it because um because the special encounter that you came up with um, reminded me a little bit on the road and city events that are in the game okay um, i'm not familiar with them. okay mm. they um i don't think they are as detailed as your situations but um they are also character class dependent in some way so cool Okay. Let's let's say you um, you run into a, a road event where some someone asks you to to, to rob a a building. Yeah. <laughs> then then the result the result will be different if you have a rogue in your party or not. Oh yeah. Okay. So very and similar then. So um, it doesn't come up too often in the game, and I think there's a lot lot of room for improvement. But I just wanted to hint you in this direction because um, it reminded me on that a little bit. Yeah, with well, the fact that you know the, the different classes affect the outcome, that's just a validation to you know uh, a mechanic that I'm going for. So that's that's great. We, I mean, I have you know I mentioned the spreadsheet, the algorithm. I mean, I wrote this uh, way back in the day. I used to teach Excel. Uh, it's a long story about that, but so I know a lot about it. So I about Excel, and so I've wrote this crazy function to uh, simulate all the combinations of all the classes for every different um, for every different encounter and then you know so that means 
And then every class, I have five motivations, and they all are rated by a by a by a by a, by a value, a decimal value, essentially, and like what you know, or percentage, essentially. What is the knight is motivated by honor, for example, right? So, you know, th- I'm kind of I'm kind of giving more hints here. So, what? How would an honor pay? You know, how, how would a knight um, behave honorably? At a certain encounter, and so and all you know, it's so I, I've and I have to think about okay, how am I going to present this in a nice grid in in the manual, you know, for the for the game master to be able to quickly, def, you know, help you know, you know okay, tell the users what the the outcome is, and so or the players what the outcomes are. So, uh, but yeah, so I've I've kind of developed it pretty far, and I have to really give uh, props to my story writer Caleb, uh, who. Who really helped make that aspect, uh, in terms of the math, um, make a lot of sense and yet still be easy, uh, easy to to manage. Well, that sounds that sounds really awesome. When will I be able to to play that game? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, it is still a decent ways out. I. Um, You know, if I have a timeline on the website and you can go look at it, it is subject to change. I put question marks on anything future dated. The ideas started five years ago. Uh, you know, at least the ex- exposure to the original maze game we talked about earlier. And I've never quit, but it's accelerating now. And um, you know, I also have to do this, and you know, we're all doing this in our spare time. So. You know, it would go faster if we could, um, you know, crowdfund it and all that kind of thing. You know, I'm I'm hoping my hope would be my hope would be ne- next year. I don't think it's possible, but maybe 2021. Um, if I got funded, I maybe I could do it. But yeah, I, I don't know, and I'm not ready to fund it yet because I, you know, I want to get the exposure out people to know about the game. So of I'm gonna do a shameless plug. Go to the website and subscribe to the <laughs> newsletter. Um, yeah, Gambit, I will. I will, I will fun, put a link right? into the show notes. Thank you very so, to much. make it easy for the for the yeah. listeners. Um, but I'll tell you one thing, Marvin, is that if this game totally flops, which I don't think it will, I want this game. I, I mean, I want it personally. I am driven. I will have this game. If I'm the only one that has the game, that would be a shame. But if I'm the only one that has the prototype and I can play it, I will be very happy with that. I'd be much more happy if other people could share in the experience with me. So the game shall be made. It's just a matter of, you know, do other people want it? And it's really great to hear that you want to play this game. I definitely want to play it, yes. Um, and if there's a Kickstarter campaign, I will back it, and um, I hope I will be able to play it before my five-year-old daughter um, turns ten. Oh uh, yeah, I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping. You know, my son is now eight, so you mm-hmm. know, I'm. I I have a deadline here where I Perfect. want to start at ten, and he's going to be turning nine later this summer. So you know, that's my goal. Um, I would love to have it ready next year, but I just don't know. Yeah, I actually had a look at your um, development timeline on your website, um, and I loved it because um, it shows your progress um, and not only your goals. Though you can you can be proud of what you have achieved so far, and you can see it on your timeline. Um, and I think it is a very good habit to to have this timeline maintained. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I talked about setting goals uh, for game designers um, before on this podcast, and um, I really think you did a good job by yeah. It is your day job by by visualizing this timeline. Yeah, that is very kind, Marvin, to say. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I um, I am very I am very optimistic. I will say that. Thank you so much, Shavas, for coming to the show and yeah, sharing all these insights of your own journey and your current design process. It's my pleasure, Marvin. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to, to play your game. And um, I'm sure our listeners learned a lot today for their own journey. Um, and I hope they are all going to your website and signing up for your newsletter. Yes. Yes. Okay. Please do. <laughs> Then thank you for your time, Shabbat. All right. Have a good one. 
After I recorded the show with Chevas, I actually had the opportunity to play the first maze that Chevas drew with my five-year-old daughter and a six-year-old boy who was visiting us. I quickly came up with some simpler rules, um, made each one a super simple character sheet, um, and then we started. To be honest, I had some doubts if I could really inspire the two kids with the idea to play a super simple dungeon crawler RPG game with me. My daughter then quickly decided that she wanted to play Witch. The six-year-old boy slipped into the role of a knight and my three-year-old son wanted to join and wanted to be a pirate. Since I couldn't think of a plausible story why a witch, a pirate and a knight were pulling through a dungeon together, uh, I kept the prequel quite short and started immediately with the game. For my three-year-old son, the decisions were a little bit too complex, so he decided that he would like to focus on, um, on watching the others. Uh, but the other two were tied up in the game like I've never seen before. And that's no overstatement. My daughter has never, never focused on a game or any other task as long as this time um, in the game controlling her witch through the dungeon. Um, the knight has always bravely challenged all the enemies and cleared the way for my daughter um, and she focused more on looting all the treasure and taking all the money. Um, evil tongues would say um, almost like in real life. But after one and a half hours of playing time, I really, I really had to force the kids to have to take a break and um, have lunch. Um, and remember, even my three-year-old son was still watching for the entire time, one and a half hours. Um, and after a few minutes of um, of lunch, all the children agreed that they had enough um, of our delicious food um, and they would um, rather want uh, to go back to the dungeon. And even during this very short lunch break, our little visitor got up several times to secretly peek under the fog of war and reveal the next room. Um, and after lunch we had another one and a half hours playing time until um, the visitor was picked up again. Both kids were still highly concentrated the entire time. They separated several times in the dungeon and then again worked together to find keys and overcome obstacles. The six-year-old boy was so enthusiastic that I actually had to give him the printout of the map home. Just yesterday I had to explain the rules to his parents because he wanted to continue playing with them at home. My conclusion is really impressive. The experience was absolutely mind-blowing for me. This was probably the best quality time um, I had with my daughter ever. We will definitely be playing the next level this week um, and I'm curious how the little witch will do this time without her knight. If Gambit has retained even a fraction of this feeling, I can't wait to get my daughter a version of it. If you want to have a similar experience, um, I can only highly recommend to um, sign up for Cheva's newsletter and join me in eagerly awaiting the next steps of this game. Until then... Keep fighting through the maze and nerd like a boss.